Rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisa Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Raz and Shine at the Sawa, Burundian government to withdraw its troops from Somalia. Israel says Security Council resolution provides inspiration for terrorism. And Zimbabwean government urged to do more to tackle typhoid outbreak. In economics news, Chinese President Xi Jinping addresses the World Economic Forum. And in sports news, Ghana beat Uganda in their Group D match at the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. 52 people have been killed and 120 injured in a Nigerian airstrike. The military says the civilians were accidentally killed in a strike that was meant to target Boko Haram militants. Medical charity MSF says the death toll is still expected to rise. The Gambia's incumbent president, Yaya Jameh, has declared a state of emergency after saying he will not step down when his mandate ends on Thursday. Regional forces are preparing for possible military intervention after West African leaders told Jameh he must hand over power to the opposition leader, Adama Barrow. is due to be inaugurated on Thursday. Jameh on Tuesday declared a state of emergency, citing foreign interference in a presidential election he lost to opponent Adama Barrow last month. The Burundian government has instructed its foreign and defense ministries to stop the withdrawal of its troops from the African Union force fighting militants in Somalia. The move comes after the government repeatedly threatened to quit its mission in Somalia following non-payment of its troops. Defense Minister Emmanuel Ndaho Mvugie told Parliament last November that the soldiers had not received their monthly allowance, which is supposed to be paid by the European Union. Burundi's deputy presidential spokesperson Jean-Claude Larreroa Ndenzako explains. This correspondence comes to implement the part of the content of the recent president's address to the nation whereby he spoke about the Burundian contingent and the peacekeeping mission in the Republic of Somalia. As you know, those troops have been doing a tremendous job, but until now it is unfortunate that the memorandum of understanding signed between the government of Burundi and the African Union has been violated by the African Union itself. So as long as the memorandum is not uh, respected in all its uh, provisions, you understand that the government of Burundi must take relevant measures to withdraw its troops. They are Republican troops, not mercenaries. 
A report on security at hotels in the Tunisian resort of Susi had found security failings just months before a terror attack. This, according to an inquest into the killings of 30 British tourists they had on Tuesday. According to a lawyer who represents the victims' families, the report was compiled in January 2015, shortly before June, when the mass shooting occurred. The report included the Rio Imperial Hotel, where extremists killed 38 people, including 30 Britons and three Irish citizens. The attack was claimed by the Islamic State jihadist group. The inquest opened on Monday and is expected to last three weeks. It is not a trial, although it could lead to further legal action by the victims' families. And finally, the United Nations World Data Forum taking place in Cape Town, South Africa, will highlight the achievements of its four-day conference at its closing media briefing on Wednesday. The conference has brought together over 1,400 data leaders and experts to build broad consensus on how to harness the power of data for sustainable development. The conference is being hosted by the United Nations and Estates SA. The host country for the second UN World Data Forum will also be announced. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Burundian government has instructed its foreign and defense ministries to start the withdrawal of its troops from the African Union force fighting militants in Somalia. The move comes after the government repeatedly threatened to quit its mission in Somalia following non-payment of its troops. The Defense Minister, Emmanuel Ntaho Mvukie, told Parliament last November that the soldiers had not received their monthly allowance, which is supposed to be paid by the European Union. Bernard Bankukira reports. If Burundi has endured several months without its troops to be paid for their peacekeeping mission in Somalia, now time has come to withdraw them, as recently pledged by President Pierre A correspondence was addressed last week by his office to the country's foreign affairs minister, instructing him to start the process of withdrawing the troops from Amisom. The information is confirmed by the deputy spokesman of Burundi's president's office, Jean-Claude Carrer-Guandenzako, who says the decision comes in line with a part of the content of the recent President Kolonziza's address to the nation, whereby he announced his plan to bring back Burundian troops in the African peacekeeping mission in Somalia. Mr. Karegwa accuses the African Union to have failed to fulfill its commitment enshrined within the Memorandum of Understanding signed between Burundi and the African Union. This correspondence comes to implement the part of the content of the recent president's address to the nation whereby he spoke about the Burundian contingent and the peacekeeping mission in the Republic of Somalia. As you know, those troops have been doing a tremendous job, but until now it is unfortunate that the Memorandum of understanding signed between the government of Burundi and the African Union has been violated by the African Union itself. So as long as the memorandum is not respected in all its provisions, you understand that the government of Burundi must take revenge measures 
to withdraw its troops. They are Republican troops, not mercenaries, and they thus deserve to be treated as Republican troops. On the side of Burundi, we have been doing what we had to do, and we have been waiting for the African Union and other organizations to fulfill their commitments. If not, you understand that the decision of Burundi's government comes at the right time. Burundi is the second largest contributor to the African Union mission in Somalia, AMISOM, in the fight against the Al-Shabaab insurgents in the country with over 5,400 troops for months. The European Union failed to disperse funds for salaries to the Burundian contingent in Amisom as a way of putting pressure to the embattled government of Pierre Nkurunziza, accused of committing gross human rights violations in a political crisis hitting the country since April 2015. For the EU, the money intended for the troops could be diverted to other uses once channeled to the government coffers, hence easing the impact of international sanctions imposed on Burundi. The European Union proposed that the African Union pay Burundian soldiers participating in AMISOM directly, cutting Bujumbura out of the process. But the African Union rejected the idea, alleging the move, once in action, would set a dangerous precedent for the future peacekeeping missions. Now Burundian troops remain unpaid, where the government cannot bear more. Meanwhile, more than 2,000 troops are expected to be deployed in Somalia in the coming February. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. The University of Maiduguri in the capital city of Nigeria's Borno state has become the first institution of learning to be attacked by Boko Haram terrorists in retaliation for the success of a Nigerian army in dislodging the group from its operational enclave inside Sambisa Forest in the northeast of the country. The twin attack, which took the lives of five people, happened inside a mosque as Muslims were having their first prayers of the day. Channel Africa's correspondent in Lagos, Collins Atohengbe, reports that Boko Haram has carried out four attacks since the beginning of the year, causing mass death in the northeast of Nigeria. From all indications, the success of Nigeria against the sect in Sambisa Forest, where they operated from in the past, has made them change tactics to a guerrilla style, making it very difficult to pin them to a specific location, with a number of them having been arrested in places as far away from the epic center as Lagos. The Borno State Police Commissioner Damian Chuku calls for vigilance, saying the war against terrorism has entered a new dimension with the attack on the University of Maiduguri. We are now in a guerrilla war situation. In the mosque, you don't know who is praying next to you. In the church, you don't know who is sitting next or praying next to you. Even in a hold-up, you don't know who is parking. So people should be very wary of people around them and be more security conscious. The incident of January 16 happened at about 5 a.m. while Muslims were at prayers in a mosque inside the university. The attack took the lives of five people, including that of a professor of veterinary medicine, Ali Umani and the seven-year-old suicide bomber. Amesatomi of the Bono State Emergency Relief Agency says the incident is the first on a university. This is the first time we recorded a suicide bombing in the university premises. So it's very unfortunate. There are about 15 that sustained injuries that were evacuated by joint team of state emergency management and the national emergency management agency to the hospital and they are now responding to the treatment. I think there is need for us to improve the security vigilance across the university premises. 
Despite the successes recorded against the sect in the battle to reclaim Sambisa Forest, a retired officer of Nigeria's Department of State Security, who has spent most of his working days in the Northeast, says it would be imperative for all security agencies to close ranks and work as one. The government should continue to improve on what they are doing presently, ensure that they continue to get more intelligence especially the need to build synergy among the security agencies so as to be able to work together on the intelligence that they have. It's situations whereby a particular agency is sitting solely on it will not really help them to be able to utilize what they have now because each agency have their own limitation. When we're dealing with situations like this, it's largely intelligence-based and the organization without resources is the DSS. So the more information they have at their disposal, the better for them to be able to do their job very well. But we also need to understand, you know, when you're dealing with organizations like this, what you start seeing them is attacking soft targets like we have seen. The attack on the University of Maiduguri is about the fault to have been carried out by the insurgents since the beginning of 2017 in the northeast of Nigeria. The group's member seems to have unending supply of necessities, including funding, to maintain the streak of attack which it has been able to carry out since it was dislodged from Sambisa Forest. Again, Shei Adetayo says they have ways of raising funds that should not be surprising to anyone. Now, those people have means of raising funds. As we're speaking, they are raising funds. And these funds are channeled into three major areas, recruitment, armaments, and then welfare. So they'll be recruiting them more. They'll be buying ammunition and they'll be providing welfare. Just like every other terrorist organization in the world, they have various means of getting money. They kidnap they rob you know they go on rampage clear communities steals from them and they still have connections with other groups that are providing resources and other people within the society that are big shots that really don't know them yet that find a way of channeling funds or resources to those people i won't be surprised when you see people multi-millionaires that are sharing the same ideology as those people and it's, it might not even be nigerians it might even be people in in from other countries that believe that um what those people are propagating is the right thing while the injured 17 are receiving treatment at the university of maiduguri teaching hospital President Muhammadu Buhari says the terrorists are guilty and deserve punishment from God and man. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Colin Satohengwe for Channel Africa. Let's go back in time to today. In the year 2001, President Lauren Kabila of the Democratic Republic of the Congo is assassinated by his bodyguard. That's today in history in the year 2001. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mujemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The arrest of an alleged ISIS member Abu Osama in Turkey last month while on his way to South Africa has once again heightened fears that the country could be under increased threat of a terrorist attack. The suspect was allegedly planning an attack in South Africa. Channel Africa's reporter Kumbelo Mujalele has more. It has been a month since Abu Osama was arrested in Turkey, but news of his arrest emerged this past weekend, sparking renewed fears that South Africa might be facing an increased terror attacks. According to Iraqi intelligence officials, Abu wasn't coming to South Africa to recruit for Islamic State group, but to identify a specific target that would later be attacked. Osama's arrest last month took place shortly after immigration officials at OR Tambo International Airport flagged another suspected terrorist entering South Africa from Turkey who was originally from the United States. The two incidents have sparked fresh concerns that South Africa might be facing an increased risk of terror attacks, especially on foreign assets. Iraqi ambassador to South Africa, Saad Kindel, says Iraq had more information on the planned attack in South Africa by Osama, but he could not share this with the South African government until it had signed a memorandum of understanding with Iraq in which both countries agreed to share security information. Intelligence information are in the hands of intelligence and security authorities in Baghdad. And I have been talking to South African authorities since I have assumed this post uh, a year ago and uh, to sign a memo of uh, understanding and agreement between the two countries to share information and also to cooperate to uh, counter terrorism. But so far this has not materialized that without signing such agreement I can't see any way that the Iraqi authorities would share such information with South African authorities. Although there have been several terror attack threats issued in South Africa previously, nothing hectic came out of the threats. Naim Gina, executive director of Afro Middle East Center, says the latest terror threats should not be taken lightly, but questions the motive of Iraqi officials around the latest threat. When the only thought you have is an ambassador of one country, who clearly has an agenda because, you know, for me the most important part of the story is a suggestion that this supposedly extremely dangerous terrorist who wanted to blow up one of the most well-guarded military air bases in the world, the Injirlik Air Base in Turkey, and then wanted to come to South Africa, that they will not provide the uh, intelligence about this to the South African government until an MOU on security is signed. So the, the embassy is quite happy to go to the media and give them the story, but they won't give the story to the South African government, even though this guy is such a big terror threat. I'm, I'm just saying that all of this makes the story extremely suspicious. I'm not even sure that this uh, Abu Sama person even exists, frankly. Naim says he is convinced South African authorities have things under control. I'm convinced that they actually are on top of the matter. They um, have good uh, monitoring systems. They know what's going on. They know people who are 
linked to some of these groups who are entering the country, leaving the country. They have a good sense of South Africans that have gone to join ISIS or, or other groups. And I think that, that on this one, I would trust that they know what they're doing. South Africa has a history of porous borders and ease of access to passports, which has previously been exploited by individuals with known links to terror groups. One example is the so-called white widow, Samantha Lutherwaite, who used a South African passport under the name Natalie Faye Webb that gave her access to South Africa. Another is the senior Al-Qaeda figure, Fazul Abdullah Mohammed, who had a South African passport on him when he was killed in Mogadishu in 2011. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbaro Munjerere in Johannesburg. Let's go back in time to today in 1989. South Africa's President P.W. Botha suffered a mild stroke at the age of 73. Botha refused to resign and was subsequently ousted from office by members of his own party. That was today in history in the year 1989. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Deputy President Sul Ramaphosa has assured investors at the World Economic Forum in Davos that South Africa will ensure that in 2017 there is greater policy set certainty. This factor has been cited as one of the deterrents for potential investors in the country. Ramaphosa says this will be to ensure that economic growth is supported and the stubbornly high unemployment rate reduced. Morafe Dabane reports from Davos. Team South Africa, led by the Deputy President, acknowledged some of the challenges South Africa is facing and looked at measures that will be put in place to address them. It also highlighted the work that it has already done in an effort to boost growth. We now need to engender further and more policy certainty. And I'm sure a number of you who are sitting here, that is something that you would like to see happening more and more. And I can say that 2017 and onwards, we will be seeking to make sure that there is policy certainty and that when institutions of government speak, they speak with one voice, they speak from the same sheet, and that investors have the amount of certainty that they should have. One of the business people attending the meeting, Jabu Mabuza, appealed to the deputy president to speedily resolve some of the major issues around legislation which continue to create uncertainty amongst investors. They include the Financial Intelligence Center Act. Deputy President, when we go back home, uh, we do have uh, some questions that are still not answered, particularly in the area of uh, the minerals uh, legislation. Indeed, there's a lot about uh, the Financial Intelligence Centre Act. Uh, There are various processes in place to try and seek consensus and seek uh, movement on those issues. So I just want to say, South Africa, uh, we can. Meanwhile, globalisation 
Inequality and unemployment featured prominently on the discussions held at the meeting. Ramaphosa says to try and deal with the stubbornly high unemployment rate in the country, government and business will sign an agreement which will see young people being put on learnerships. The hope is that they will then be fully employed. And when we work together, we achieve unbelievable results. Working together now with business, challenge, uh, addressing the challenge of youth unemployment, where we are soon going to reach an accord or an agreement, where we will have up to one million young people being brought into learnerships, internships, is something that we need to be proud of. And inclusive growth is going to be a key challenge as we move on. Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says in the next coming few months, the world will become more complex and challenging. However, he says South Africa will do its best to deal with the global challenges that lie ahead. Clearly, we're living in an environment where globally, as you can hear around you and see around you in Davos, uh, life is going to become very complex, very unpredictable. And uh, where certainly the title of uh, this WEF session, uh, Responsive and Responsible Leadership, is a very apt one. The danger, of course, is that everybody pays lip service to how we're going to deal with inequality, the gap between citizens and elites, uh, the uh, lack of growth that is taking place in the world. Today, both political and business leaders will discuss issues around the labor market integration, climate change, as well as food security. I'm Morafi Tabani in Davos, Switzerland. Going back in time to today in 1953, Sir Evelyn Baring, governor of Kenya, introduced the death penalty for anyone who organized the taking of the Mau Mau Oath during the height of the Mau Mau Rebellion. The British argued that the oath was often forced upon Kikuyu people. It called for the individual's death if he failed to kill a European farmer or even his own relations when ordered to do so by the organization. That was today in history in the year 1953. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In its first meeting on the Palestinian question since the landmark resolution demanding Israel halt its settlement activity in occupied territory late last year, the Security Council received a firm rebuke from Israel's envoy who labeled the council's action an inspiration for terror. Ambassador Danny Danon cited the Palestinian-driven truck attack on soldiers in Jerusalem last week that killed four while injuring dozens among a host of examples while announcing the suspension of several millions from its annual contribution to the UN for 2017. The Palestinian envoy for his part said the resolution not only revived hope in the prospects for peace but revived convictions in international law and the council's credibility. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The provisional agenda of the meeting is the situation in the Middle East, including the Palestinian question. The agenda is adopted. Israel's envoy labeled the actions of the UN dangerous, 
while calling a recently concluded summit in Paris that reiterated its support for a two-state solution, an exercise in arrogance. Listen to Ambassador Danny Denon in the Security Council. It saddens me, however, to report that last month's resolution has set us back in the pursuit of peace. The message emanating from this hall, from the current administration in Washington, and now from Paris, is exactly the opposite. It has encouraged the Palestinians to continue down the dangerous path that they have chosen. The day after the Security Council vote, Fatah, the movement of Mahmoud Abbas, posted a cartoon on their official Facebook page. It showed a dagger in the shape of a map of Israel colored with the Palestinian flag. Ambassador Danon expressed hopes that the appointment of a new Secretary-General would usher in a wind of change towards Israel at the world body, while he boldly declared hope in the new American President, who will take office on Friday, seeking a return to a U.S. position of rejecting so-called unfair and biased council resolutions, while rather promoting a genuine dialogue between Israel and Palestine. In the wake of last month's resolution, we have decided that enough is enough. Israel has initiated a reassessment of our relationship with a number of UN organizations. Our first step is to suspend more than $6 million from our annual contributions to the UN for 2017. This amount represents the portion of the UN budget allocated to anti-Israel bodies, which represents the UN's double standard when it comes to Israel. Palestine accused Israel of legal acrobatics to justify its continuing illegal colonization of Palestinian land. Ambassador Riyad Mansour. The adoption of Resolution 2334 represents a turning point. It is a moment of truth. Israel, the occupying power, must choose between occupation and peace. They are mutually exclusive and cannot coexist. It is time for Israel to choose whether the two-state solution will become reality or whether history will be set on a different course. Differing with his Israeli counterpart, he welcomed the convening of the recent Middle East Peace Conference in France. The Paris Conference underscored the urgency inter alia of res- restoring a credible horizon for meaningful peace negotiations and reaffirmed the role of multilateral diplomacy for addressing challenges in the Middle East and beyond. The UN continues to warn stakeholders against unilateral actions that would prejudge a negotiated final status solution. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari expresses deep sadness and regret after a Nigerian Air Force fighter jet on a mission against Boko Haram mistakenly bombed a refugee camp, killing more than 100 refugees and aid workers. The Gambia's incumbent president, Yaya Jameh, declares a state of emergency after saying he will not step down when his mandate ends on Thursday. And the Burundian government orders the withdrawal of its troops from the African Union force fighting militants in Somalia. Details on these and other stories at 9.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Technology has taken center stage at the ongoing United Nations World Data Forum currently taking place in South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town. The event allows thousands of data and statistics experts from around the world to explore innovative ways to apply data and statistics to measure global progress and inform evidence-based policy decisions on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Research shows that data access and utilization has long been the preview of the privilege where those from wealthier nations can access any information they need at the click of a button. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by South Africa's Statistician General Paddy Lohotla. Good morning, Paddy, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Uh, good morning, and uh, good morning to listeners. Uh, and thank you very much for inviting me to our program. Now, Today is the last day of the event. Would you say it has been a successful one? I think uh, from uh, the variety of stakeholders, uh, the quality of discussions, uh, the presenters, uh, the mood of collaboration, uh, I think uh, we will have a, a fantastic uh, global action plan. Um, obviously, uh, what has to be tested is, uh, is it implementable. I think uh, it is implementable uh, because the context of the SDGs actually harnesses all of us uh, to work uh, together. I think uh, the pressure of uh, climate change, uh, the uh, well uh, realizing that uh, we are on the precipice if we don't do things differently, I think uh, makes it possible. Uh, for the world of data and the world of statistics, technology and financing uh, to find a rational and uh, governance-driven process uh, to achieve uh, better results uh, towards sustainable development. Now, how can data and access to information become available to all citizens so that they can effectively hold their governments accountable and monitor the implementation of the SDGs? I think um, it's not so much holding the government accountable. I think uh, the, the, the availability of data enables everybody uh, to play their part and uh, for each one's part to be visible and their contribution to be accounted for. So it's no longer only holding those who are in government uh, accountable, but uh, it's how citizens themselves uh, hold themselves accountable and play their part, uh, thus uh, completing the accountability cycle. And for that, uh, you need data. So you can see the accountability gaps, deficit, and the roles that each one of us uh, played and the contribution that we could have made. Let's let's speak about... And for that, you need data. 
Mm. All right. Now, let's speak about the issue of uh, privacy, a very, very huge um, issue. Um, the value of data as well as cyber attacks have also been at the forefront of the debates at this conference. Can you briefly tell us about that? As far as privacy is concerned, the fundamental principles for official statistics, uh, the ones that uh, we as statisticians use, and probably the banks use and the other institutions use, that uh, private information, uh, personal private information is personal and private and means that way. Uh, that, that's at the heart of the discussion. But uh, the uh, mobile technology, the availability of technology, uh, threaten uh, that privacy. Also, people uh, seem not to be so worried about privacy. If you look at uh, Facebook and all these other things, uh, there they, they is a lot that is personal and private that is too much in the public domain. It is quite clear that uh, privacy can uh, can be broken very easily, uh, given uh, particularly geographic information, uh, because you can get locational data, you can get uh, attribute data about persons, and indeed you can predict who the person you are talking to is. So there is a lot that has to be done in that space to ensure that uh, privacy is uh, protected. Uh, but uh, more importantly, what happens when privacy has been violated? Uh, because certainly there can't be foolproof uh, privacy. I think there have to be outlined processes by which uh, breaches uh, can be dealt with. Uh, well, you can't say there are no thieves. Uh, that's why you have prisons, you have policing, you have all those, in order that uh, those who break the law uh, find uh, uh, just, uh, get justice, uh, or at least they have justice uh, acted upon them. So in similar ways, uh, issues in data have to follow the same route. Now finally, what recommendations or outcomes can we look forward to from this event? I think based on our discussions, there are a few conclusions to make, probably three or four. First, uh, the world of data must uh, impact on everyone, and then therefore there has to be capacity uh, to all uh, to manage uh, different levels of data. Uh, there has to be capacity for aggregation, disaggregation, analysis, uh, because uh, yeah, individuals may not be as competent in analyzing as institutions such as education institutions, statistics institutions, research institutions, uh, private sector institutions such as uh, banking and so on, uh, the ability to analyze has to be upped. Uh, two, access to data has to be uh, uh, made free, and uh, all data must be free by default, save that which is uh, very private and personal. Uh, private sector institutions, I'm sure, should, uh, by necessity, share the data that they have. Uh, of course, they, that doesn't stop them from uh, using it for their own private sector end. But uh, publicly, uh, the, pub, the data that we produce uh, and contribute to the private sector must be available uh, to society as a commons. Uh, uh, and that doesn't stop the private sector from using it. Uh, third, um, coordination is very crucial, but that coordination has to be driven by standards. So we have to uh, establish and enhance the standards that already exist so that one can understand uh, that a data is currency and that currency must have high integrity. And it can only have that if it complies with specific standards. Thank you so and much. And of course, there is a new host. Uh, and this is not just an event. It's uh, actually 
something that we'll have to regularly host and in between uh, act on uh, uh, the resolutions that will have been taken uh, in the first day. Thank you so much, uh, Paddy, for joining us this morning and all the best with your final day at uh, the event today. No, no, that's it. Thank you very much. That was South Africa's Statistician General Paddy Luhotla joining us on the line from Cape Town. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Doctors and aid organizations in Zimbabwe have called on the government to improve the country's water and sanitation amid a typhoid outbreak. The outbreak that has struck more than 200 people in the capital, Harare, has killed at least two people and has been detected in other parts of Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights has also expressed concern at the poor data collection regarding victims of the current typhoid outbreak. Simon Machema reports from Harare. During a media briefing in Harare Tuesday, Zimbabwean Doctors for Human Rights under the Civil Society Health Emergency Response Coordinating Committee, CSHERCC, expressed the concern statistics of typhoid outbreak being stated by the government are not comprehensive. According to the Secretary General of the Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights, Dr. Evans Mastara said government is failing to capture adequate statistics due to the absence of a proper plan. To date, government say at least 2,000 people countrywide were infected and at least 10 people died due to the outbreak with the majority being residents of Harare. Instead of dealing with the key drivers of the typhoid outbreak, Harare authorities are accused of having no clear plan of dealing with the problem. Dr. Evans Mastara, Secretary General of the Zimbabwe Association for Doctors for Human Rights, said. So regarding these uh, statistics, the statistics that are mainly being presented by our government are from the public health system. We have a lot of uh, private players, a lot of um, uh, small surgeries who are treating typhoid patients on a daily basis. And uh, from uh, what we are gathering, uh, this problem is also affecting uh, northern, uh, patients in northern suburbs because um, citizens are very mobile individuals, like they work and uh, stay in different areas. So we um, in the process of trying to, to get um, our own set of statistics from uh, private, uh, private healthcare providers so that we can compare and contrast with what is being presented by government. President of the Zimbabwe Human Rights Doctors Association, Dr. Edgar Munazi, added. I think according to government laws, uh, typhoid is a notifiable disease. So ordinarily if a patient uh, is uh, diagnosed with typhoid, they're supposed to notify and the, the, the center for notification is uh, a Beatrice Infectious Disease or a Hospital. But we know on, for a fact that that is not being uh, done. People are just being treated wherever they are reporting. And people are, so what the figures that we are getting... Uh, primarily are coming from two centers, which is Beatrice um, uh, Disease Hospital and also Mbari Polytechnic. Because according to the uh, city of Harare Health Department, 
patients are supposed to be referred from wherever they are being diagnosed. Ordinarily, are supposed to be referred to DRDH and also Mbari Polyclinic, but this is not happening. So if a patient is diagnosed in Mbari or in Budiri or a surgery, they're just being managed there. So the, the figures are coming from two centers. According to the Civil Society Health Emergency Response Coordinating Committee, more still needs to be done regarding the outbreak. Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights Director Zimbabwe Chimbwa say, I think there is a multiplicity of actions that we have already taken as a collective. And one of the things that we have done is we have actually ordered a letter uh, to the ministry for them to review the plan that is there to deal with the issue that is there. Of course, from our interactions and interventions on the ground, we are aware that there is no robust plan. So the letter is serving as a purpose to expose, if I can put it in a better way, that there is actually no plan. Because we think that publicly out the back stops with the ministry. Of course, there are other line ministries, there's the local authority that is responsible. But the ministry itself must take the lead and deal with the issue of public health. So we think that um, we have also had a meeting with the mayor himself, who is, um, well, off the record, he doesn't seem to think that there's a good plan that is there. But um, he thinks that a lot still needs to be done. Although there has been a steady decline of the number of people infected with typhoid in the past week, human rights activists say a number of cases are not being recorded. Dr. Evans Mastara said urging government to plan adequately. The latest cases of typhoid are not isolated incidents with a historical trend dating back to as far as 2008 when more than 90,000 cholera cases were reported and more than 3,500 deaths. <coughs> as a result of an outbreak. The problem must therefore be understood in terms of a systemic failure by the state to deal decisively with a known problem. The repetitive nature of the outbreaks of typhoid and other waterborne diseases is a result of failure on the part of the state through central government and local authorities to plan adequately and anticipate the outbreak of such diseases every season. The key drivers of the outbreak of typhoid are known and have been repeatedly highlighted in the past years. These include the erratic supplies of clean water and failure to attend to the leaking of raw sewage into the environment. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. And I'm Tabiso Lohoko with an economics update. Most delegates at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland have welcomed Chinese President Xi Jinping's opening remarks, which focused on many issues affecting different parts of the world, including globalization. Jinping's presence at the meeting comes amid rising tensions between Beijing and U.S. President-elect Donald Trump, who will be inaugurated on Friday, the final day of the World Economic Forum in Davos. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says that Jinping's speech is relevant to the current global climate. It was great listening to President Xi Jinping, uh, iconic global speech, which in many ways addresses a number of issues that countries around the world are having to grapple with. Nigerian Vice President Oluyemi 
Osin Bajo has meanwhile praised the youth at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He says young people are already in control of the conversation on social media and in control of the direction of technology. Osin Bajo adds that they're defending entrepreneurship and governance. Airtel Kenya's announcement of the second staff retrenchment within one year has raised questions on the firm's ability to mount a challenge on market leader Safaricom. The telecommunications firm on Friday sent home a hundred of its staff in what it termed a strategic organizational restructuring to improve efficiency across function. The latest redundancy adds to the 60 others that the telco let go in January last year. South Africa's automotive sector, the country's largest manufacturing industry, expects a slight increase in new vehicle sales this year as economic growth gains pace. Thanks to commodity price rises and a recovery in farming, South Africa's National Association of Automobile Manufacturers of South Africa says new vehicle sales are expected to rise by 2.5% to 3.5% this year. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.54 in South Africa. It's at 10.47 in Botswana, 9.87 in Zambia. 8.2 British pound, 9.3 euro. Gold, $1,215. Platinum, $977 pounds. Brand crude, $55.72 cents a barrel. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Tabisolo Poko, and I'm an African. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. It's 8.49 Central African time and our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news. Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp has revealed that FIFA will make a decision over the eligibility of Joel Matip on Friday. Matip is currently at the centre of a club versus country row, having refused to play for Cameroon during the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations, despite being included in the preliminary squad. FIFA rules dictate that the defender is unable to play for Liverpool without his country's consent until the end of Cameroon's involvement in the tournament. But the Reds have argued that Matip considers himself retired from international duty, having not played for his country since September 2015. Reports had speculated that Liverpool were considering risking punishment by playing Matip during today's FA Cup tie with Plymouth Argyle. But they now look set to wait for FIFA's ruling at the end of the week. Should World Football's governing body rule in favour of Cameroon, then Matip could miss as many as six more Liverpool matches. 
Andrew Ayew scored the only goal of the game to give Ghana a 1-0 victory over Uganda in the opening Group D match at the Africa Cup of Nations in Gabon. The West Ham winger slotted in a penalty on 32nd minute after Captain Asamoah Gyan had been pulled back. Ghana also threatened through two Gyan hitters while Ayew and Christiane Azu tested Uganda goalkeeper Dennis Onyango. Uganda came close when Faruku Mia hit the outside of a post, but they could not force their way back into the game. It was a disappointing return for Uganda, who are playing at their first Nations Cup since 1978 when they lost in the final to then host Ghana. The teams will return to action on the 21st of January for Group D's second round of matches in Port Gentil. Mali will face Ghana, while Egypt tackles Uganda. And in cricket news, Protean's left-handed power hitter David Miller says he's pleased to be back in the green and gold colours after a couple of injury layoffs saw him also miss a fair share of domestic cricket in the recent CSA T20 Challenge. Miller last played competitive for the Proteas during the emphatic 5-0 ODI series whitewash over Australia last year. He says he's looking forward to the upcoming T20 series against Sri Lanka starting in Centurion Super Sports Park on Friday. Yeah, it's been some time now, but it's also been really good to be back in the domestic fold and just getting some game time and uh, obviously going through some, some routines and always get a bit of, bit of FOMO um, watching some test cricket and the way that they were playing was, was really exceptional, so it was good stuff. It is nice to be back in the, the green and gold. Looking forward to the next few weeks. Yeah, I'm pretty much over all my injuries. I had a little cough. So I started with the groin and then uh, moved into the calf and uh, yeah, but they were very minor, so I'm pretty much over that and done some good rehab and I've played she played a few games since that, so yeah, feeling strong and healthy again. Miller, who was instrumental in the Proteus Whitewash of Australia, says he will not be looking to changing a lot of things with his personal game plan as it has been working well for the past six months. It's been a process the last sort of year and a half, two years with my personal game. So I feel like I've, I've grown a lot, uh, learnt a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm sticking to, to what has sort of worked in the last sort of six months. But, yeah, I mean, it was disappointing to, to miss out on most of the T20 challenge after starting really well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not ideal with little injuries and niggles like that. But I suppose that's part of the game. And, yeah, looking forward to getting back and, and now being here for the next couple of weeks. Finally, with Netball News, Netball South Africa, the NSA president, Mimim Teto, says it is important for the national team to be exposed to higher quality international matches. The Proteas, who are ranked fifth in the world, will campaign in the third leg of the Netball Quad Series, which will take place from the 28th until the 31st of this month at Debens International Convention Centre. The tournament will feature the World and Commonwealth Champions Australia, who are also ranked number one in the world. New Zealand and England, who are ranked second and third respectively, will also take part in a series nicknamed Sanzia. I, I think it's very important for anyone who would want to improve their performance. If you want to improve your performance, you play against the best. So um, I think uh, we have realized as Network South Africa that for so long the countries have been telling us that we are good, we've got good players, but the only thing that we, we lack in is good competitions where players are going to play very hard, are going to play aggressively against each other regularly. That is why then we decided to have the the Brutal Fruit Neighbor Premier League. We started it because we wanted to make sure that we keep our players playing. Now the, the only challenge that we have is we're still playing against 
ourselves there so the level of play no matter how high it is uh, at the brutal fruit netball premier league uh, competition but it's not really the same the intensity is still not the same as your super league that would be played in in in, in the uk as uh, the league that is played by uh, australia and new zealand that's your sport news this hour Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Burundian government to withdraw its troops from Somalia. Israel says Security Council resolution provides inspiration for terrorism and Zimbabwe's government urged to do more to tackle typhoid outbreak. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Sfiso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Chico with a song titled Western Woman. This song is sung in Venda. The song is about a Venda man.